0: This morning, I invite you to turn to Luke 13 on your phone or in your Bible or watch the screen. I want to share some thoughts that I think um, are really, really important for us and and touch the way in which we live and and the people in which surround us, that we respond appropriately to these things. Pray that I make it clear and not mess it up with too much superfluous blather and uh, uh, catch what God's trying to tell us in this text. This is Luke 13, starting in verse 1. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. This is a very, this is like people were just telling him what was going on in the headlines. Pilate was a real punk and uh, would oftentimes just mess with people in this particular situation. He actually killed some guys, some Galileans, because he wanted to do this sacrifice. And Jesus answered, do you think that those guys, those Galileans, were worse sinners because they got into that mess than all the Galileans because they suffered this way? He says, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, he's not suggesting here that they were all going to die under the hands of Pilate, but we'll see in a minute what he was pointing to. He says, or those 18 guys that that died when the Tower of Siloam that was made by human beings, they got around it, maybe they're touring, whatever, sightseeing, and uh, the tower fell on them and killed them. He said, do you guys think that they were more guilty than anyone else that lives in Jerusalem? Uh, no. He says. I tell you, no, it's not, it's not true. But unless you repent, he says, you two all will perish. Not again, there's not going to have another tower fall on them, but uh, he's pointing to something else. We'll see in a second. In this Series that we've been doing that leads up to Easter, we've been focusing on these various gospel narratives, these little stories that help us get a glimpse into Jesus himself, into his mind, into the way that he thinks. Because for us, Jesus is our, the central part of our story. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And uh, he's the one that we should imitate and follow. And uh, open our hearts to. In this particular story, what's interesting is Jesus is giving a brand new view on the idea of evil, which is a markedly different way of looking at evil than what you typically get in the Old Testament. Uh, The Bible, it turns out, as you study it, has a kind of progression of understanding in it and you start and clarity. You start early in the Old Testament, you get these glimpses of God, and then as you go further into the Old Testament, things change a little bit. You get a different kind of angle of God, like walking around a mountain, a different view that's a little more full, a little more complete. Uh, And then in the New Testament, you get an even clearer view. For example, early in the Old Testament, you see just how austere and uh, sort of uh, reactive God is to disobedience, to sin. And we pick up a text like in Genesis 6 and 13. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people. That's That means he's upset. <laughs> For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm just going to just going to cancel their ticket, right, and destroy them and the earth. Well, the story ends up that he doesn't do completely all that. He saves Noah. But, or listen to this from uh, Exodus 20. This is when God gives the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments, as we call them. This is about 1440 B.C. was when this was written, and listen to what it says. Uh, God says, you shall not bow down to them. He's talking about idols or worship idols, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And watch this. Punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and the fourth generation—very interesting thing—that God said, "If you if you mess with me, I'm going to respond back to you, but not just to you, to your kids, to your grandkids, and to your great great grandkids and to your great 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 grandkids. I'm just gonna—you don't want to mess with me—is what God's saying to them." Okay. But by the time you get to the back end of Babylonian captivity, about a thousand years later, we see, this is after, the, this, is after the, uh, uh, this whole business of, of Babylonian captivity, we see Ezekiel writing in Ezekiel 18. This is written about the 590s BC. The soul who sins is the one who will die. The son will not share the guilt of the father, nor will the father share the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous man will be credited to him and the wickedness of the wicked man will be credited against him. What he's saying is that it's no longer going to be this whole generation upon generation. People need to stand on their own and they're held accountable for what's going on their own. Now, This begs a question. Is God changing or is he revealing more about himself over time? which would imply that we don't completely understand God earlier and that some of the language that we see the stories we see are a little opaque. Now, this may freak you out if you don't understand that it's only in the last 500 years that Christians have embraced a view of scripture that's more like the Muslims understand the Quran. The Muslims understand the Quran that every single word was communicated by God. And that even the language in which it's written in Arabic is the language that God speaks. Uh, For Christians and for the Jews, they always believed that the prophets and the people that wrote scripture were inspired by God. But God would speak to them and that not only would he be speaking, but they would also be writing. And it was this co-mixing together. So that's why you have a scripture that has God in it, and it's certainly god breathing it's certainly inerrant in that sense, if we can use that term, or those of you that understand that term. Certainly that's true. But it's not like we look at it like the Quran. It isn't a that every single way, that, that the prophets are just... Uh, in a trance, (laughs) writing what God was saying. They actually participated. And you hear the prophets and the stories that were there and Paul making statements like, "Uh, I I say this, not the Lord. In other words, their, their personality was involved, which means there's space for understanding and nuanced understanding. A text from Hebrews sheds light on this. It says, Hebrews chapter 1, it says, In the past, and he's referring to the Old Testament, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, watch, at many times and in various ways. In other words, it was a a little bit like bits and pieces. In other words, if, if I had a, a big puzzle up here, 10,000 piece puzzle and I took you know little pieces of it and threw it out to you and you grabbed it say I've got the word of God it's true you would you'd have a bit and a piece of it but you don't necessarily have the whole thing and it could be true that the little green piece you have you might think is a tree when in reality it's a piece of grass Right, And there's a little uncertainty because we only have it in bits and pieces. You need to understand that some of the stories you see unveiling in the scriptures, they don't always tell you everything clearly about who God is. So sometimes he comes across meaner. Sometimes he comes across in ways that just confuse us. That doesn't mean he's like that. It just means that's the way he seemed at that time. Right, But watch what it says here. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. In other words, he's the, he is the puzzle put together. <laughs> right? He's not just a piece. Whom he appointed heir of all things and through, him, through whom he made the universe. And the sun is the radiance of God's glory. What does that mean? Jesus is the radiance of God. What it means is if God is light, Jesus is the bright. That if God is the water, Jesus is the wet. Right? He's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his being. He's exa- It'd be like, um, those of you that remember last week or two weeks ago when, when uh, Pastor Brent drew some pictures and you were just astounded by his amazing <laughs> drawing ability. If, if we would have him come here and draw a quarter for us, some of you might guess that it really is a resemblance of a quarter. Many of us would be in in the dark, <laughs> right? But if I if we saw his... His sort of, that would be the Old Testament. But if any of us brought out an actual quarter, that is the exact representation of a quarter. It's the quarter. See, Jesus was the quarter. The Old Testament was that drawing, right? And so, he's the exact representation of God's being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. And after he had made a purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. See, Jesus is the exact representation of God for us. And yet, Jesus himself, as we have said throughout this series since January, talking about Jesus, is that he's chock full of mystery himself. So the bottom line is, we, we know a little bit about God, <laughs> but he, he, he's impossible to really know. Like, and I, tell, I say this a lot, but it's really true. When I, when, if I would ask you to tell me who you are, you'd throw some words at it. You'd tell me some things you do. Tell, but the reality is you could not really tell me who you are because who you actually are transcends words. It, descri- it's ineffable. In other words, it's not able to be described. If you, can, if you can't describe it, how many of you have been married to the same person for a number of years and they still surprise you? Right? It's true because we're, we're v- more vast than words can grasp, right? And, and how much more God... This this ineffable, this un- indescribable being, and so we, we see through a dark glass darkly how it comes. Now, coming back to this story, we're talking about Jesus' view of evil, and and basically there were two views that emerged from ancient Israel about this business of of, of evil that lead us smack into this gospel story. That we have, uh, and the first is this: this idea of the prophetic view. The prophetic view of evil means that if you do bad things, God punishes you. So if you have evil in your life, it's because you earned it. Fairly straightforward. If you have good things in your life, God blesses you. Simple. So if good things are going on in your life, you must be doing things right. God is blessing you. It's just a simple deal. Deuteronomy 30 captures this notion. This day, Moses says, I call heaven and earth as a witness against you. I've set before you life. I've set before you death. I've set before you blessing. I've set before you cursing. It's up to you now. What are you going to choose so that your life, that you and your children may live? Very simple, very straightforward, very logical. And it's very, it's causation's easy to spot. What causes things is easy to spot. If things are good, you're doing what's right. God blessed America because we had godliness going on early. I mean, never mind that we murdered tens of thousands of Native Americans needlessly, and never mind that we owned people as slaves, but our founding fathers were saints. That should garner an email or two. (laughs) If you're in trouble. You must have done something wrong. I mean, New Orleans gets hits with Katrina. That's easy. God hates what's going on at Bourbon Street. So he just smote them. Or the Twin Towers. I mean, God must hate America because what America's doing? I mean, maybe it's because America's killing babies. So he smote us Again. Or, you know, the emergence of HIV in the the 80s. I remember hearing the Pat Robertsons and the Jerry Falwells saying that God was smiting the gays because that's where it emerged. It emerged, HIV emerged within that community. See, that's the Old Testament view. That when problems come, you can, can find the cause. It's very logical. If there's an evil situation that arises, well, what caused it? And then people try to go back and they find something that in their perspective convinces them. There's, there's people here in this room that buy into this view. Um, when evil hits, the first question we ask ourselves is, why me? Why me? The doctor says, you've got cancer. Why me? See? And we start looking for causation. Job's friends totally bought into this. <laughs> they, Job was having trouble. All this stuff happened to Job. And what did his friends do? Well, Job, for weeks, Job, well, what's because of this. Well, it's because of this. It's because of this. They just kept thinking up reasons why it was because of it. But Job kept saying, no, that's not the problem, right? God never does answer Job what was going on in that deal. But this is not Jesus' view of evil. He did not have the prophetic view. He had a different view that had emerged out of Jewish thought, which, which you don't have time to jump into. It's very interesting. But he had what theologians call the apocalyptic view. And what that meant was, is that it was a New Testament view. It just simply meant that, that evil isn't as neat and simple as what some people think it is. It's, it's, it's not just that God simply blesses and curses people. The New Testament acknowledges that God isn't the only one at the party of influence. That there are other forces in the world. The New Testament recognizes that, it, that even though at some future day God's going to come in and he's going to overcome all the other forces that are at work in the world that cause evil. At that moment's called the great eschaton. It's when God actually comes and all the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And God's going to kick some, you know, demons or whatever other forces. He's going to bring all things under control. Uh, but, but the New Testament's clear. There, there is... Uh, a a kind of a, 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 a mosaic of forces that are in the world. For instance, the New Testament considers evil people in their own right as being a force in the world. Pilate is an example in our gospel story, where he's the one that was responsible for killing those Galileans. It wasn't those Galileans, according to Jesus, that, that had done some horrible sin that Jesus said, well, they, were they taken by Pilate because of their great sin? Were they more sinners than anyone else? It wasn't their sin. It wasn't this idea of they did good and they did had good or they did bad and they had bad. No, there's a dude named Pilate and he's an evil guy. And so if you encounter an evil, mean person in your life, that doesn't mean you did something wrong. And that God sent them to you to torment you before your time. (laughs) Like the demons. You know what it means? Those dudes are just in the world. Duck. Right? (laughs) Angels are considered a force in the New Testament. We read in Matthew 18, this is Jesus. He says, see that you do not... Look down on one of these little ones. He's talking about children. For I tell you that their are angels in heaven. Always oh, see the face of my Father in heaven. He's saying that angels are engaged with our lives at different points. Uh, Jesus credits at least some of the miraculous work that he does to the presence of angels. He says to this guy named Nathaniel in John 1, he said, Jesus said, you believe, Nathaniel. you believe because I told you that I saw you under this tree, but you shall see greater things than that. He has, I tell you the truth, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That's part of the reason why Jesus had the wisdom that he had and the insight that he had, is because it was his angelic activity. Angels are engaged as a force in the world. The New Testament says that sin is seen as an actual force. It isn't just a choice. In the a prophetic Old Testament view, sin was just something you choose to do. Here's life, here's death, here's blessing, here's cursing. You just, if you choose cursing, if you choose to sin, you just chose to sin, you idiot. Right? The New Testament says sin's not like that. It's not just something you choose. It's something that's like a force that pulls at you. That's why, that's why temptation can be so real and so strong. It's deceptive, which means it presents as true something that's a lie. It's like it's alive. Sin is something that's a force in the world. So Jesus says in John 8, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. There's a, there's a Lord, there's a master going on, a mastery going on. And then he told the Jews who had believed in him in verse 31 of the same chapter, if you hold my teaching, hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will what? Set you free from what? This force of sin. It's not just, it doesn't, the truth will make you make better decisions. I mean, it will, but it's not just you making better decisions. You need to be set free from a force that has control in your life, right? Uh, then there's the demonic. <laughs> this is very little of the demonic demons and Satan. Very little of that seen in the Old Testament. But you read Jesus, you see that demons sometimes cause psychological problems. Not all psychological problems are caused by demons. Don't think that. But sometimes they did. You have stories in the New Testament where that's the truth. Or sometimes uh, they caused illnesses. That doesn't mean all illnesses are from Satan or the demons or something like that. But there are situations where they were. Here's an example. Luke 13, on the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues and a woman who was there? Who had been crippled by a spirit, by an evil spirit, for eighteen years? Notice the prophetic view is absent here. It isn't like no one said, "Well, that woman sinned; that's why she got that going on." She's under judgment. She, she, some. What did she do wrong? That, what, no question about what she did. There's, you know, on a causation. An evil spirit is the causation, not her choices. A very different view, and uh, the reality is because. There are so many influences at play under this apocalyptic New Testament view because there's so many influences at play you're wasting your time by looking for causation. In our text this is exactly why Jesus responds the way he responds. He's not looking for causation. They were how did those did those uh those Galileans that were killed by Pilate, you know, what did they do? Jesus immediately aborts that. Don't ask if they are any more wicked than anyone else. Let's read it one more time. Luke 13. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus said, do you think that those Galileans were worse sinners? This isn't about what they did. This isn't about the, the, the prophetic view, the Old Testament view, isn't the only reason why bad and good happen in the world. He says, "Uh, uh, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Interestingly, again, he's not saying that they're going to be killed by Pilate. You'll be perishing too. He's actually giving them a hint at how we're to respond to evil. Most people respond to evil by searching for causation. Because if you can find out why it happened to you or why that happened to Sarah, maybe you can get her out of it or at least keep yourself from getting it by not acting like Sarah. Sarah. The same thing happens with the story of the temple or the tower falling. Here's the problem with this New Testament view. It's complex. The prophetic view is just so logical. The causation is so clear. This this New Testament view, it's not logical. It's what philosophers would call teleological. And what that means is there's just too much going on to tell what's really causing what right Uh, uh, causation is not clear because there are just too many factors to consider on this new testament view it's impossible to say whether bourbon street caused katrina it's impossible to say that because you know it might not have been that at all it might have been that new orleans is near the place where hurricanes happen (laughs) and that one happened in new orleans it's deep i know What this means is that when trouble comes, don't waste time trying to figure out why, nor jump into people's lives trying to be one of Job's friends and trying to find the right appropriate accusation that will buttonhole them into seeing why they have trouble. And yet, that's the exact impulse that most believers have in the New Testament, or in our day. Don't trust your impulse to judge. So what do we do? Okay, glad you asked that. A couple of things we get from this story. Number one is Jesus focused on the eternal when temporal evil emerged. This is why he says, I tell you no. Don't think that those Galileans had more causation for this, them being killed by Pilate than anyone else. Don't think that those folks from Jerusalem, that the tower fell on them, that they're worse sinners. I tell you no. He says instead, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. What he's pointing to, that's a little, this is Bible speak from Jesus. That what he was saying was God, what God is up to in eternity is more important than an outbreak of evil here. This little phrase, you too will perish, it's a reference to the eternal perishing. It's this notion that Pilate may be killing you, towers may be falling on people, but that is the least of your concerns. That is a small matter to compared to what God is up to and that you need to face him one day, and all the eternal stuff is a lot more important than what you see in the temporal. So we, we read a text like this. You remember, Jesus taught them this, Matthew 10, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. So you don't have to be afraid of people that kill the body because you've got something eternal in you. So whenever evil comes, the question isn't, oh my gosh, why did it come? The question is, what's God doing? God's bigger than evil, right? So, which leads to the second point, that when evil comes, Jesus' reference was not to try to figure out what happened, but instead he sought to glorify God through it not that god is causal but that god is bigger and greater so we find a text like this (laughs) you'll recognize this text this is john 9 as jesus went along he saw this blind guy that had been blind from birth his disciples asked him watch this is the ot the old testament view the prophetic view rabbi who sinned the guy's blind somebody had to sin who do we blame the gays Huh? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Watch what Jesus says. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. You're bumping into something that is inexplicable because it's too complex. It's teleological. You can't find the logical strain. It's too much stuff going on in a fallen world. We're in a fire swamp that sometimes you step in one place and you're safe. You step in another place and the fire comes out. There's no way to tell. Just is what it is. So instead of trying to figure out who did what and what happened where, what you should do is look for the work of God. He said, "But this happened that the work of God might be displayed." And he said, "Look, don't look for causation. Look for the work of God." What is God going to do here? It happened. Too bad it happened. Sad that it happened. Horrible that it happened. But what is God going to do with this? That's the question the Christian asks. So we seek to glorify God, and let me give you three quick ways as we stop here on how you can glorify God when you run smack into evil. Number one is just remember God has eternity to sort it all out. One can't help but wonder why evil is present in the world. I mean, this, if you talk to atheists, this is one of their strongest points. How can there be a loving God if there's evil in the world? Either he's not loving, he's malevolent on some level, or else he's too weak to do anything about it. It's a very persuasive argument. You know, you can't help wonder that. How can God just stand by and watch it all happen? Why doesn't he intervene and stop it all? But don't be confused. God isn't letting evil and evil perpetrators get away with it. He may forgive those who repent, but if people continue to reject God and push evil agendas, he'll eventually, they're going to eventually answer to God for it. I mean... It may look like they're getting away with it. It may look like evil's winning from a human perspective, but we have to remember that we're only on this planet for about 100 years. Blink, blink, and you're gone. God doesn't feel the pressure to demonstrate his justice to you. You know, he just calls us to trust that he is just. Just. There will come a day when God will settle accounts. There will come a day when God will right every wrong. And one of the ways that we glorify God in evil days is to remember that God is not limited to writing wrongs during our life. That he will make, I mean, the, God is the author and the creator of time. He's the author and creator of everything we see. And one day he will right every wrong that's been done here. One day, according to scripture, he'll make sure that there's no more death, no more mourning, no more pain. The old order of things will pass away and all things that were wrong will be righted. There will be in revelation language, no longer any sea. It doesn't mean there won't be water. The word sea, that that metaphor of the seas in the Old Testament language and then that ancient world stood for evil. It was a metaphor for evil. There will be a day where there will no longer be any evil. So God's not freaked out if you have a bad experience or you're, the fire swamp explodes on you and you're trying to figure out why God, why me, why this happened. Stop it. If you're going to approach, I don't care what evil happens to you. I don't care what a doctor tells you. I don't care what report you get. Yes, it's painful. Yes, it's horrible. Yes, it's, it, it, it makes us cry and it brings us pain. But God says, I'm bigger than that. Trust me. And don't try to make me fit into your schedule. That's a hard, I understand that's a hard pill to swallow. I get that. But my friend, if you're a Christian, it is the view you must swallow. Second thing, when evil shows up, we just have to glorify God by the fact that we acknowledge his presence in the midst of our pain, in the midst of the evil. Now, we don't know really how many times God has protected us from all the evil we could have had. I mean, the reality is, you know, we come to communion and we participate in the bread. And in a very real way, Paul says, if we participate in the bread wrongly, it means sickness for us and weakness for us. And that some have actually died. I mean, that's a pretty provocative text that most of us just pretend isn't in there. I don't think much about it, you know, because we, we're word people, but only certain words. <laughs> right? But if, 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 if a meal like this can hurt us, it means a meal like this can heal us. I know people that actually have come to the table where they were, had just sickness, that they were healed just by coming to the table. I wonder how many times God has driven stuff out of us, kept at bay disease in us that we have no idea he did just because we pray over our food. And because we're loving him and because we come to the table and because we communicate with each other with love and we're confessing our sins. Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. How, how do you know that in your confession and openness and humility before each other as we serve God that you're being healed of things you don't even know you're being healed of, right? Uh, or, or how many times has God, you know, because of your repentance in church services or in worship or in fellowship, has completely kept this huge, evil, horrible event that was going to happen in your life, pushed it at bay, because you, he was able to move in your life Because precisely because you're following him. You don't know all the good that's in your life or how God has brought it in. Or angels who have saved you. I read a, a survey about angels. People believe, most people in America believe that when they look back on their life, at some point in their life that they were saved from something like a car accident or a disaster, that they thought, oh my gosh, I should have died there. I should have been hurt, but they weren't. And they believe that some force, usually they call it an angel, saved them. Remember, Jesus said, children have angels that that seemingly follow us all of our lives. How many times have you been saved by angels as you shot around the earth at insane miles per hour? (laughs) Right? So there's much, much good in the world, and God is responsible for all of that. But there are times when good is not found. And evil prevails. We tend to say, why? Why? People get all freaked out because of the evil that's in the world, not realizing somebody's responsible for the good. If you're going to talk about evil, you need to talk about good. You just need to ask the question, why doesn't good prevail? Not why is there evil, because all evil is, is the good didn't get quite there. So why is there evil? Uh, what do you do then? Why do, what do you do when it comes? Well, Psalm 46 and 1 says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. In other words, God is right there even when evil shows up. Now, that's counterintuitive for us because we think if he's right there, why is there evil? (laughs) If he's right there present, why isn't it gone? Don't know how to answer that. But we do know this, that God is with the starving child. God is with the people that are trapped under the debris of an earthquake. God is with that mom who has, is dying with brain cancer and has three children. God is with them in their agony and in their pain. Every tear is God's tear. Every heartbreak is God's heartbreak. Jesus Christ came into this planet in order to enter, not just to bring good, but to enter the pain of the fall. And somehow he embraces all the agony and all the pain of this world. Theologians call it the incarnation Quote from uh, author uh, Peter Kreeft, he says, Quote, just imagine every single pain in the history of the world all rolled together into a ball, eaten by God, digested fully, tasted eternally. In the act of creating this world, God not only said let there be pretty little bunny rabbits and flowers and sunsets, but also let there be blood and guts and the buzzing flies around the cross. In a sense, God is intimately involved in the act of creating a world of suffering. He didn't do it. We brought suffering into it, yet he did say, let this world be. And if he he did that and then just sat back and said, well, it's your own fault after all, although he'd be perfectly justified in doing that, I don't see how we could love him. The fact that he went beyond justice and quite incredibly took all the suffering upon himself, what more are we asking him to do? See, we're in a broken world. Jesus was honest with us. He told us this would be a place of trouble. And God's first impulse is to simply come to us. And he listens to us and becomes one with us with our pain. And he enters into it with us. (laughs) If you want to represent Jesus, don't enter into pain by trying to fix it. Or to explain it. Or to show people why it came. Just be there with people. That's the story of Jesus in Matthew 25. When he looked at them, he said, come into my kingdom. They said, why? They said, because when I was sick, you took care of me. And when I was poor, when I didn't have any water, I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I didn't have clothes, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. Then, what? We, we never did those things. He said, no, no. When you did it to these, you did it to me. Why? Because I'm with them when they're in prison. I'm with them when they're, I'm with that person that's sick. Well, wait a minute. We thought if you were with them, they wouldn't be. See, this is more complex than our little minds parse it out to be, and we just get our Bible verses and stack them up into the premises and stack them up, and we just are controlling the world. Sick, healed, hurting, free. And even though a lot of that happens, thank God prayer works. But sometimes it doesn't. Don't try to come up with reasons why it didn't. Well, you need to have more faith in your faith. You just need to confess the Bible verses a little longer. Well, you need to shut up. <laughs> Thirdly and finally, we glorify God in the midst of evil by recognizing God is calling us to do something about evil ourselves. We're supposed to do good Paul said it this way, don't be overcome by evil, but respond to it by doing good. Prayer is good, but a lot of times our prayers have to be, we have to put feet to our prayers. And we have to engage with people. As Christ followers, we're to attack attack evil with good. That's why Jesus called us the light of the world. These good things don't earn us eternal favor from God, but they give us an edge over the evil that's in this world. And so when we encounter it, we, as members of Christ's church, we get involved I'll never forget the lady that that called me. There was a mom called me, and it was about midnight. And, and, well, actually, it wasn't her. It was her her friend that called me about midnight. And um, they were at the hospital, and their daughter had just, driving, got killed in a car accident. And everything in me didn't even want to go. when you see hurt and pain, part of us recoils. And I, I pushed myself to go, because I mean, I want to go. I just like listen to myself. Pushed myself to go and walked into the hospital. And I didn't know we had to tell where they were there. You could hear them yelling, wailing, crying. Walked into the room. And they're on the floor like a ball. And I just remember I just, I just got down by them and hugged them, cried to them, stayed there. Didn't say anything to them. There's just times when evil is so horrible. You, there's no words to say anything. But you just go to it. And being there and following up with people, how are you doing? Not just at the funeral? Sometimes I'll call people, you know, I'll put it in my calendar. A year later I'll call them. How are you doing? Well, anything you can do to just, what happens is that the good you do conquers the evil at results and so even though the thing happened it's like god begins to work and turns what's evil into good and almost makes it look over time because of the good that comes like god used it to bring the good and so some people change their theology not because they read the bible but because of their experience and they say well god brought that to bring this no wait god does not need to use evil to bring good he only needs good to bring good don't get confused. Just because God brought really good things, I mean, your sister died of cancer and, and your uncle came to Christ. See, well, God had to kill your sister to bring your uncle to Christ. No, he didn't. Jesus died to bring your uncle to Christ, not kill your sister. But God is so good that he could take your sister's horrible death and actually use it to bring something wonderful up. That's how good God is. All right, yeah. All right so here, here, here's here's what I'm saying to you. Whenever you encounter evil in your life, you're going to assume the prophetic view. You're going to try to teach, you're going to try to analyze, you're going to even self-assure. Uh, you know, that would have that would never happen to me if I if I just don't and then fill in the blank. Don't do that. It's wrong. It's an Old Testament view. It's not the right view. It's not Jesus' view. Instead, think about how can I glorify God here? Recognize that He doesn't have to make it all right in a week, He has eternity, hard pill. Be there for people, roll up your sleeves and do good. This is the view that Jesus has on evil.